Welcome, viewers and listeners, to the Total Football Analysis EPL Podcast. We are the Thinking Pants Podcast. Each week, we get together with our besties, who are current pro players, real coaches, academics, and stat heads. Today, we're joined by soccer analyst Harshel Patel. Also on the pod is professional footballer Dre Fortune. And I'm host Chris Mumford, Bella Chow. We're sponsored by the Premier League Guide, a 300-page guide of the season created by a team of 15-plus writers and designers. Moneyball for football, analytics plus opposition, analysis plus eye candy. The next update is available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. During week 11, dare I say we're moving into more normal as some fans are able to attend the games. No real upsets, while the league standings are not much different than last year's. The only sore thumb is the Newcastle-Aston Villa game, which was postponed due to positive COVID tests, setting the fantasy football world a Twitter. Today, we recap Manchester United, West Ham, Chelsea Leeds, Tottenham Arsenal, Liverpool, Wolves, Leicester, Sheffield United, amongst others. We consider the upcoming coming Champions League fixtures and preview Week 12 matches. These includes the Manchester Derby, Everton, Chelsea, Leeds, West Ham, Crystal Palace, Tottenham, and Leicester, Brighton. So, Harshell, help us unpack that Man United-West Ham game. It was a tale of two halves. Yeah, and um, I mean, um, it was quite a little surreal for me because I thought I think I predicted almost everything that would happen in this game on the last episode that we did in terms of the scoreline, the 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 way the game would pan out, and the fact that United would find it difficult. Because I mean, people may think that United are a little inconsistent, but to be honest, they're actually quite consistent over the last say year or so in terms of the way they play. You know. We all know now that United are going to struggle against teams which sit back and play in a low block and they're going to do well when the when the opposition is pushing on and they have space to counter. And that's basically what happened in this game. In the first half, I thought West Ham was supremely efficient defensively. Said they, They've played that 5-4-1 sort of system uh, for the entirety of the season under uh, under David Moyes and they, they do really well in terms of absolutely denying oppos- uh, the opposition any space in central areas. And uh, they were, and they then counterattacked quite well as well. I mean, it wasn't just the goal which came from a corner, which is again proving to be a bit of a weakness for United. You know, they're conceding goals from set pieces, but uh, they counterattacked a few times as well. Dean Henderson had a couple of saves to make. There was a chance where uh, Ale went through and then sort of stumbled, which allowed uh, Henderson to recover because he otherwise had an empty net to score into in the first half. West Ham didn't take those chances, and United. Uh, Solskjaer made the changes for United in the at, at halftime. Brought on Cavani, uh, sorry, uh, Fernandez and Rashford who were rested, and they made the difference because Rashford's pace in behind forced the West Ham backline to defend a little deeper, and he was offering the sort of runs that Cavani and Martial weren't doing in the first half. While obviously we all know about Fernandez' quality, and I mean there's just, one statistic just clearly lays this out for me. I think United created four chances in the first half. Fernandez on his own created eight chances in the second half, which just tells you his quality. But it's also slightly worrying that, I mean, more than slightly worrying, it's quite obvious that United don't really tick unless Fernandez is on the pitch, you know, through his passing, his movement, his running. So, yeah, that individual quality came through the four, uh, came to the four, and United got the three goals. But it's basically more of the same, you know, where you know that if you can sit back and stifle United for space, they will struggle. And that's what happened in this game until West Ham had to open up. Dre, do you think that Bruno Fernandes has probably been the best signing for Manchester United in the last five, let's say five or seven years? Uh, probably. I'm, I'm struggling to think of anyone else who's came in and had the same impact that he's had on the team. Um, obviously, coming off the bench, he was really sharp. But I think also it's important to to point out, I mean, the, the goals that they scored were just incredible individual moments. I mean, Paul Pogba scored from, what, 25, 30 yards out. Fantastic finish. And uh, even even Greenwood's goal, the second one, I think it's, you know, 
one of the sharpest two touches you'll see inside the box uh, to create the space for himself and to finish. So um, obviously Fernandez has, has incredible impact, but I think the, the, the goals as well, it's important to point out the individual efforts from those players. And then, you know, I'm, I'm kind of I'm a little bit disappointed in West Ham because like we, like we mentioned, they, they had their chances to take in the first half and they didn't take them. And obviously that changes the game, especially against a big team like Man United. They're, they're always going to go into the game. They're always going to be in the game. Uh, you know, even if you do go up 2-0, they're still a threat to, to come back and win. So um, I think, you know, if they score one one or two more goals in the first half, it completely changes the outlook of the game and, and how we're discussing it now. But all credit to Manchester United. So, Harshel, help me understand this. I, I think if you look at the number of points that Manchester United scored since p- the post-COVID shutdown to into the new season, they've scored as much as anybody. Um, in Champions League, they've got some work to do. But why is this perception that Man United is not very good different from kind of the reality of it in that they're sitting in fifth place with a game in hand? Uh, I, I, why is there – it's almost – you almost jokingly want to call it a, a kind of a, a media bias against Man United. What's What's going on there? It's not a media bias, but it's just, I think – a, the fact that obviously United are such a huge club, probably biggest club in England, perhaps even in the world, right? So there's always that expectation that Man United need to be towards the top of the table, which hasn't happened since Alex Ferguson retired. So that pressure is always going to be there. But at this, but with regard to this specific scenario where I think it's a, it's a case of maybe wanting more from Ole as well in terms of what he's put together because it's quite obvious that as I said earlier, that United are really good at transitions and counter-attacking football, but they're not able to get the, say, what the likes of Liverpool or City can do, where they can keep the ball and create attacks through intelligent movement and passing and break down teams with low blocks. And it's that sort of perception of how a big team apparently is supposed to play, which is that you should be able to dominate possession and create bucket loads of chances and score goals and play attractive football, whereas counter-attacking football is sort of conventionally seen as something that smaller teams or, you know, uh, underdogs resort to, to try and win games. And it's that, that is a large reason as to why um, a, a lot of the perception against uh, Jose, Mourinho, Jose Mourinho also turned towards his end, uh, towards the time, his uh, sort of the end of his time at Man United. Although obviously, I mean, I think it was broken by the time he left. His methods weren't being taken on by the squad and alienated many of them but that whole perception of counter-attacking football not being suited to a big club is I think the root cause of the dissatisfaction with United where they are at the moment where I mean as you said if you look at it objectively they're five points off the top with a game in hand they do have work to do in the Champions League and I mean had they not lost that game against Istanbul away uh, in Turkey they would have qualified by now so but I mean the result is still in their own hands in the Champions League as well. You know, it's not like they're depending on anyone else. They can, they can, All they need to do is go out and win. So, objectively, they are in a good place, but that's basically the perception that I spoke yeah. about. Yeah, I mean, the way I look at it is, is that Man United, only inherited Man United, and it was like this box of toys that didn't play well together. And Fernandez to me, is like that one missing block in Jenga that you need to keep everything together. And I'm really kind of, when you look at the Man United lineup at this point, there are not a lot of gaping pieces that are missing. They do feel shaky at times, and you don't get that same sense from a, from a Liverpool. You do from a Man City in that, you know, if, if you don't have a striker like Jesus or really Aguero, it doesn't, doesn't quite run. But I, I just... I feel that Man U is a little bit shaky. Some of the wins they have is just by the skin of their teeth. And I think West Ham is a perfect example. They're tough out and they could have, they could have changed the outcome of the game, just like several games could have been changed at the, at the right time. But that's why you have to play the game and for, for 90 plus minutes. So um, well, let's turn our attention to probably the most intriguing game in terms of um, tactics is the Chelsea Leeds game. Harshel, what happened there and and what was your take on it? I mean, it's a we've seen this season that Leeds have invariably 
played well against the big teams. They've not necessarily won. I mean, they obviously lost to Liverpool on the opening day, but that was a thrilling 4-3 uh, loss. Uh, they've they've done well against Arsenal. They did well against City. You know, winning both those games. Uh, they they drew against City. My bad. But I thought this was the first game where they were sort of outplayed in terms of uh, they obviously they took the they they scored the opening goal. Calvin Phillips' pass was absolutely brilliant, and then Bamford uh, showed. I mean, he just did the simple things well and scored. But and I think also that was the first sort of error that. Edward Mendy has made since he became Chelsea goalkeeper, where he sort of came out, I think, too early and completely missed both the ball and the player. But Chelsea absolutely racked up the chances in this game. You know, they scored three, but they could have scored many more. I I don't remember the XG for this game for Chelsea, but it was quite uh, quite heavily weighed in in their favor. So it's just, that just and and if you look at the game as well, if you go back and look at the game, Chelsea, uh, we all know that Leeds. Up, uh, deploy a sort of man marking system all over the pitch. So Chelsea were very clever with their movement. Giroud was dropping off, uh, which was obviously then Robin Cock had to was following him, and then that created space for for the likes of um, Ziyech and Havertz to go into. Havertz on the right before he went off through injury was sort of coming inside, which allowed Reese James to go out on the overlap, and that's how the first goal was created for Chelsea. Where the same move happened, James went on the overlap, crossed it, and Giroud scored. So. There was a lot of movement which Chelsea were doing, and they were also a lot more direct, which I think is another good example of how to play against a team like Leeds, who man mark all of the pitches to make runs off the ball and play a little more direct rather than trying to sort of you know hold on to hold on to the ball for longer periods because that you can sort of turn over possession. So it was quite quite intelligent, and I think it was quite good from Chelsea. So that that tells me that um, maybe sort of you know that Lampard is having. Is is doing a good job there. He's coaching them well in terms of how they should play against specific opposition. So that that should be good news for Chelsea fans. I think too as well though is that having having Giroud up front kind of kind of makes that difference for them. I mean he's yep. Lampard's got decisions to make now with Giroud because he's he's came in obviously. I mean we know he's the goal scorer and he's making differences uh, in that way, but also just allowing them to have an outlet. I think I think that's a huge that's a huge uh, opportunity as well. I think Chris will be absolutely overjoyed with the impact he's had in the last week. He scored four in the midweek in the Champions League game, and then he scored here as well. You know, there's a great Chinese quote, which is whenever he or she steps into the room and sits down at the table, that's where the head of the table is. And (laughs) I I think Giroud is that person with the canniness of his runs, where, to Dre's point, it creates a point of focus and a directness where people, their first look up, if you're in the back line or in the midfield, is where is Giroud? That's my, that's my A option. And then I can look for, for, for diagonals, and then I'll, or I'll settle for the lateral. And I just think that when Chelsea was settling in with, all, with kind of its new cast of characters, there was a lot of passing around on the back line, and, and people weren't exactly sure what to do. And, you know, there's no question that this is going to be Werner's team going forward right but I think Giroud has made the case that it for 2021 this can be this is my house Frank if you let me have the house right and you know I will say that Chelsea is starting to kind of look like a serious contender for for Liverpool and Man City and you know it we knew the pieces were there. We just didn't know how long it was going to take. I think Reese James is a revelation. Um, I, I don't. I still don't think he gets enough credit um, for for what he can do. Um, as far as leads go, gosh, they are so fun to watch. Um, I was a little struck by how they seem to have more of a mid a mid block as opposed to a high press, what they normally did. But that's probably out of respect to Chelsea. That back line and their front line is just so blazing fast that they were going to leave themselves uh, exposed if they did that. Um, I, I can't get my head around how Leeds, you know, they've given up the third most goals in in the league. Um, and, you know, their 14th place reflects that. They've scored 16 goals. They're still so exciting to watch, right? That's getting to be one of my I-need-to-see-it sort of games. Um you know, the truth is, is that Chelsea has five or six players that 
are just better than the five or six players in leads and one-to-one marking what's going to happen if you have a, a much better player that you have to play against one-on-one it doesn't look good and by the time the second half of came around leads just seemed like they were done they were totally done and you know the third goal which was beautiful to watch it was kind of the game had already been won at that point but you know i don't have a antidote for lead set pieces problem which everyone's talking about um you know i thought Giroud did a great job of pushing <laughs> um zuma's uh defender out of the way uh and uh, almost to the point where it could have been a foul but you know fair play that's that's kind of what happens in the box so I found it. Uh, I found it just a, a fascinating game to watch, where you start starting to say, "All right, Chelsea is the real deal. Leeds is the box of chocolates. You don't know what you're going to get, right?" I, I think they're probably going to be a a mid to lower league table that's going to scare the heck out of the big six anytime they play. Um, so let's Dre. Let's sh- turn our attention to the Tottenham Arsenal game, where you have a lot of personal. Uh, investment in what tell us what happened in that game what was your take for me just Tottenham was again they, they went out with a game plan they were resilient they they were difficult to break down specifically through the middle of the field and as we know they're very dangerous on the counter-attack with the Sun and Kane and whoever did you know other strike would be whether it's Bergwijn Lucas whoever um so we just saw again I, I don't think I don't think Arsenal is, has really figured it out. I mean, they've started Partey in the middle of the field, who apparently wasn't fully fit, and he's getting a lot of the blame for the second goal. But for me, I, I, I don't think I don't think there's much more for him to be able to do there. I mean, he goes off the side of the field because he can't he can't move. Um, Arteta tries to push him back on. He takes about five steps, and he he just he stops because obviously he's in pain. Um, and as a midfielder, I I'm. I'll take the perspective of you have to be aware if you're Zaka or somebody, you have to be aware of what's going on around you. Um, your your defenders have to be talking to you to make sure that that is sorted out because they see him, they see him go off the field. Uh, but yeah, again, an, an, another solid performance from Tottenham. Son and Kane are, are proving to be tremendous uh, together up front. And um, I think, I think excuse me, the midfielder, Hoiberg, Hoiberg got man of the match for, for Tottenham. He's, He's obviously, uh, you know, put in a tremendous shift. For me, it's fun. I mean, he's got a goal and assist. He can go wrong with that. But, uh, yeah, Tottenham's really seemed to figure it out. And, and I think I think they're going to be close to the top for the rest of the season. So, Harshell, Tottenham had a .26 expected goals uh, and Arsenal had a .76. So, Tottenham had just a, a dusting of goal opportunities. How do how do we ex- explain this? I mean, there were only five shots on target the entire match. You explain. I mean, there's, the only way to look at it is that Tottenham have two world class finishers in their team at the moment, in Son and Kane, who, as you said, you know, I think those were literally the two chances that Spurs created throughout the entire game. But both of those chances were a direct result of the way Mourinho wanted them to play, which is. Sit back, soak up all the pressure, soak up um, Arsenal's possession, and then hit them on the counter. And that's literally, I think, both goals were exactly the same in terms of the approach, where it was just rapid counterattacking. Um, and I mean, Harry Kane has ten assists in the league now, which is incredible to me. He's he's turned into he's always had that in his locker. Throughout, I mean, if you look at his career since he was in the Spurs academy and all of that. People have always spoken about how he's always been someone who drops between the lines and he can sort of play passes out. But that's gone to another level this season. You know, 10 assists for a striker is insane. And he's scoring the goals as well, right? He has, I believe he has eight goals. So that's incredible. And then Son um, has uh, is scoring the goals and he also set one up for, for Kane. So that duo up front is just world-class. And Mourinho said as much. He, he said that I've got a world-class uh, duo up front. So... As long as the two of them stay fit and they they can sort of keep up this form, Spurs are going to be in with a chance because Mourinho's got them doing the defensive side of things really well. Because Arsenal, and this is actually another interesting point I want to bring up, which is that last week Arteta spoke about how he wants his team to cross more 
they I think they put in 33 crosses in their previous Premier League game and Arteta said that we should maybe be crossing even more because it's the math as he said he literally said it's, it's as, as uh, the math will work out and if you put crosses in and you have bodies in the box you know you will get chances but they put in 44 crosses this week weekend against Spurs which is the most in the league so far but I mean I think there were nine which were successful so they weren't good they weren't good at all <laughs> Terrible. Story. I mean yeah it's it's one thing to put crosses in, but it's also on how and what type of cross it is. I mean, it, it shouldn't just be an aimless ball towards the back post or something. Because Arsenal don't have the players who are going to win headers in the air. Aubameyang isn't going to win too many in the air. Lacazette isn't going to win too many in the air. Neither is Nketiah, right? So, especially, I mean, you've got Toby Alderweire and Eric Dyer who are going to just head those balls away all day long. It, they need to be quicker. They need to be along the ground, drilled in. So to sort of create that uncertainty, which, uh, you know, where a defender, it could sort of ricochet off a defender or a mistime clearance or something of that sort, or just, you know, sharp movement from Aubameyang to get in front of the defender when such a cross comes in. So it's not as simple as saying, hey, we'll just cross the ball and we'll create chances. And I mean, to be honest, both of Spurs goals came from Arsenal crosses where they mistimed or they sort of gave away possession because the cross was not good enough. And I think both goals... It was about 15 seconds from the time that Arsenal conceded possession that they, that Spurs had scored. So I think Arteta needs to work. <laughs> I mean, I get that there's a lack of creativity, but I don't think this is the way they're going to solve it. So, Dre, I mean, how do we fix? How does Arsenal get fixed? I, I what what what's missing? I mean, they. Their style of play, Arteta it checks that box. We're focusing on defense, they've checked that box. They've got some fabulous players. What what, what needs to change? Uh, for me, I, I mean, we've spoken about it the whole time. I think it's just the creativity. I mean, we look at, I don't remember a single chance for Aubameyang in, in, in that game. And, I mean, he, need, he needs them. He's not going to score any other way. Uh, obviously, the, the easiest thing to say is, well, know they've got Ozil and he's not playing but um I don't know I mean that they have attacking players they have William they have Pepe they have Lacazette Aubameyang and they have these guys who you think would be able to to figure it out and, and get you some goals but I think just the link up between between the midfield and the attack um specifically in the final third is where they're struggling the most right now and I mean like Kasha said I don't, I don't think the crossing is going to fix it especially I mean, I was watching some of the crosses they were putting into the box. Williams floating one up, picking out Saka on the back post. I mean, that's not. I don't. I, I don't raise the chances in that, you know. So um, it'll be interesting to see how they how they progress and continue uh, in search of, of trying to create. Because especially, I've been watching Arsenal since since I was maybe seven, you know, back in two thousand three, something like that. And it was always just free flowing football and and, and creating opportunities with. With you know little passes and one twos and stuff like that, and I don't I don't really see any of that anymore. So uh, it'll be really interesting to see what what, what happens. So who's I mean, who's going to be there, Harshal? Who's going to be there, Bruno Fernandez? I honestly think they've got some uh, that sort of player sitting at home, as as Dre said. I, I genuinely think, given the situation Arsenal are in right now, the best thing for them to do is, I mean, don't go to sign someone in this in January. There's a lot of rumors around Dominic Zbotsalai, who's Incredible! He's like a 20-year-old Aust- uh, Hungarian playmaker at RB at Red Bull Salzburg, who's doing really well. I mean, yes, you could look to bring him in and all of that, but just bring. Me- I mean, you just bring Mesut Ozil back in from the cold. You can register players again in January, so I would, in my opinion, they they should bring Ozil back. Um, you don't. I mean, I don't see the point of playing Willian at the moment. He's not offering anything on the ball, so. I, I mean, imagine just for you know argument's sake, if you have a front line which has Aubameyang, uh, maybe Lacazette, Pepe, and Ozil as your front four, that's a pretty dangerous one. Or maybe if you don't want Pepe, put Saka in for a little bit more um, hard work, which can and running off the ball, which obviously you compensate for Ozil's uh, lack of work defensively. But I genuinely think that that sort of front four can cause a lot of teams damage, and Ozil. To be honest, he was he's done well in sort of counter-attacking teams as well. One of his, some of his best um, seasons were under Mourinho at Real Madrid. Mourinho. When Real Madrid won the title, Ozil was that was the centerpiece of that team where he would just be laying on chance. Uh, I mean, when sort of Real would counter and he would be the one passing it to Ronaldo and Benzema and Bale, uh, not Bale, but Ronaldo and Benzema. So 
I, I genuinely, I mean, they have the guy, I think, in the house, even if it's just a short term for six months before they let him go in the summer. But that could be, the, I mean, if they bring him back, that could help them save the season. So just to kind of wrap up a couple points, um, I really saw Tottenham feel really comfortable in, in this low block counterattacking um, scheme. Under Pochettino, they were built to be a, a positive attacking team. And I was very skeptical when Mo tried to move them towards this counterattacking team, but they just feel, they look very comfortable and confident in soaking up the pressure. And I'm struck by how Man United and Tottenham are really developing as, as counterpressing type teams. Sorry, uh, counterattack type teams. I, I just wonder if if they're going to win against the low blocks consistently, um, the low block teams, and that's so you might be able to beat better teams or teams that are playing positive football, and clearly I have a bias towards that. But I don't know if you're going to be able to go the distance. So time's going to tell on that. I'm, I'm going to be really fascinated. My heart's out to Leno. Both those goals, he had zero, zero shot on. So, um, uh, you know, he's languishing a bit in, in his stats. But that's because uh, I feel like his uh, his team's letting him down a bit. Um, so let's turn our attention to, to the Liverpool-Wolves game. And, you know, Wolves has always been a tough out, potential banana peel. Um, what what ended up happening there, Harshal? I would say that Wolves is still sort of obviously they've a huge part of their team is missing right now with Raul Jimenez, and we don't know when he'll be back. So they need to adapt very quickly to playing without him because he is in the system that they used to play, which was a back three, and it would either be a three-five-two or a three-four-three. But he would be the sort of central focal point, which we were talking about earlier with Giroud. He did a very similar job with Wolves, where it's not just, I mean, he did obviously score a lot of goals, but at the same time, his movement, his ability to hold up the ball and bring uh, the others, the wingers or the, the other sort of attacking players into play. Um, and just the fact that he would attract the attention of at least one defender, if not two, meant that, you know, space would open up for the other guys. They don't have that anymore. They're not going to have that for a while. The only other option they have as an out-and-out striker is an 18-year-old Fabio Silva, who is still very untested. And I think it's right that Nuno's sort of not thrown him straight into the fire. They're giving him time to develop and understand and uh, get used to English football. So, and I mean, they've, they've also gone to a back four at the same time. So I think there's a lot of adjustment that the Wolves are needing to do right now on the fly, playing without him and playing in a back four, which they've not done for the last three years. Uh, so I think that's what sort of caught them out a little bit at, at Anfield and against a team like Liverpool, where even the slightest sort of, you know, hesitance or uh, if you're just a little bit under your usual level, they'll punish you. And that's what happened. I think uh, Salah was fantastic on the night. Probably should have scored more. Mane was electric. Wijnaldum's goal was brilliant. Henderson, I think, locked down midfield. Absolutely brilliantly. You know, Ruben Neves didn't get... He, I think Ruben Neves had like 32 touches of the ball. He didn't make a single... I think he made one pass uh, forward. Uh, not one pass forward. I think he made one through pass forward and he was taken off on the R because... Henderson absolutely nullified him. So it was another excellent performance from Liverpool. And we've said this, you know, it's they're turning into a machine where even with key players out, they can still grind out wins. And this yeah. is not just a grinding. I mean, they, they absolutely destroyed Wolves. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and to follow up on Henderson, he you know, he's very quietly, he's number four in most progressive uh, passes uh, per 90 in the Premier League. So for... A, a midfield which is not known for really advancing the ball. Uh, Henderson is, is is making the runs and making extra things happen. I think Liverpool is Liverpool, right? I mean, I I, I think the concerns about the back line um, have proven to be uh, premature. Um, I think Matip demonstrated that he's got jets; he can fly, um, particularly even against a, an eighteen-year-old youngster who had who just goes with the wind. Um, there were several times when uh, just pace for pace, no problem at all. Uh, and then the youngster goalkeeper for Liverpool, uh, Keller, which uh, interestingly enough, his 
his the jersey his game day jersey was misspelled it missed the e uh, uh one of the e's in his name so um um i that'll probably become quite a collector's item going forward so i don't see liverpool stumbling um anytime soon i think their schedule starts to lighten up just a bit um so tottenham's gets a whole lot harder um so it'll be interesting to kind of see if that table starts to move a bit but it seems like a fairly routine game for for Liverpool Wolves. Hoping that Jimenez comes back um, sooner rather than later. There is no return on that because he is that person that uh, because he's he's wherever he sits is the head of the table. Um, let's just chat briefly. Uh, you know, Leicester Sheffield uh, that match. Um, Sheffield uh, gave him gave him a good solid match, but um, you had that Superman Vardy uh, come in in the high 80s let's call it the 88th minute uh, and score that goal and you kind of knew as soon as that as that pass was released that Vardy was just going to flat out score um Harshel, any any other notes on that Leicester Sheffield game I think uh, Leicester did a really good job of showing how to play against um a, a team that sets up like Sheffield United in terms of they were so they were basically able to pin the wing backs one on uh, create a 1v1 on the wings they had an overload in the midfield because it was a 4v3 with two playmakers and two central midfielders. So Sheffield United playing with the three central midfielders were outmatched there as well. And Vardy with his pace obviously meant that Sheffield United, they are a deep defensive. I mean, they do defend deep, but they were defending deep here primarily also because of Vardy's pace in behind, which then again, because there's an overload in midfield, then creates all the space for those two creators, those two sort of creative midfield players. And it was really difficult for Sheffield United to pick up um, possession in those areas and even at the back they had an overload at the back as well where two strikers against three centre-backs so they were able to sort of recycle possession there so I thought it was really interesting from Rogers. he showed how to I think that's a very good template of how to play not just against Sheffield United but any team that sets up in that shape sort of like a 5-3-2 or a 3-5-2 depending on where the wingbacks are so yeah just in terms of uh, tactical uh, sort of what I took away from that game that it, it's a good it will it again we saw that Rogers probably one of the best tacticians that the league has he gets a lot of stick because of um, sort of his his the way he sort of <laughs> says some things in press conferences and, and all of that but he's always been a really good uh, guy at setting teams up how to play against uh, specific opponents yeah I, I think it's it's going to be interesting I, Lester still is is prone to some slips over some banana peels. And this was going to be potentially one of those. And thankfully, Vardy bailed them out. Um, in other news, uh, Everton was able to squeak out a 1-1 win over Burnley at Turf Moor. Um, always a tough out. Nice to see Burnley seem to be recovering a bit. Uh, Crystal Palace whooped up on West Brom 5-1. Of course, that red card for, with West Brom. Um, made went from bad to things a whole lot worse. Uh, and today we've got the Brighton Southampton game. So I, I thought there was some very entertaining football to watch. I think there was a lot of intrigue. Um, we, Dre, help us figure out, is there much intrigue in the Champions League fixtures and or uh, Europa this during the week? Uh, no, not much really. I mean, all the teams are kind of solid and, and, and locked in. For the next round, Manu is the only team with a game that they have to get a result from uh, against Red Bull Salzburg, right? Leipzig. RB Leipzig. Leipzig, yes, Red Bull Leipzig. So um, that's going to be an interesting one to watch. It's probably going to be the game I'm going to watch on that day, and uh, be I'll be looking forward to see them in the Europa League against Arsenal. So uh, that'll be <laughs> that'll be nice. Very nice, very nice. Um, Harsho, do you want to to profile that? match very much the the man united um, yeah so united have shot themselves in the foot a little bit in the champions league because after the start they had where they beat leipzig and psg in their first two games they should have sh sort of you know qualification should have been in their bag by now but um that really that that loss to istanbul away is the one that hurts has that's hurt them because you can i mean it's fine to lose to psg they did they lost to psg at old trafford as well but had they won that game in Turkey, they would be home and dry and probably would have won the group by now. So it's still, as I said earlier, it's still in their own hands. They they know what they need to do. 
it'll be a, it, but it will be a tough game because i mean leipzig came are coming off a three all draw with bayern munich on the weekend where they were very dangerous they could have scored more goals uh and they gave bayern a, a proper scare you know so they're going to obviously take confidence from that and um it'll be interesting to see if united can manage to sort of shut down leipzig the way they did in the first meeting at old trafford so i'm interested to see how that works out but again if it comes down to individual quality like it did in the game against west ham um united should win through because they do have the better individuals and but yeah i mean as jay said you know you you never know if 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 the system doesn't work or if you know united aren't able to cope with leipzig pressing we could again see united in the europa league so that is obviously the game of the of the uh, sort of champions league and europa league rounds especially as, at least as far as the premier league is concerned very good let's while we're on the subject of man united we've got the manchester derby coming up um Dre, what what are your first impressions of that of that preview for really the showcase match for week 11? Uh to be honest typically I'm way more excited about Manchester Derby than I am this time around. Uh I think you know at, at least Manchester City starting to catch a bit of form, they're starting to create a little more chances and, and score more goals. Obviously Menu's won the last four so uh it'll be interesting they're right next to each other in the table and obviously they're fighting to kind of break into that top four. Um kind of predict a little bit but I, it it'll it'll be interesting for me to see how the lineups are especially you know with Manchester United having to they're going to have to play a strong team midweek uh meaning that you know they might be you know they can't exactly rest players or whatever the case may be so um I'd like to see Manchester City win I'd, I'd like to call maybe a maybe a 1-0 or 2-1 but that, those are always tough to predict so we'll see I'll have you. I'll have you mark down for a one-nil win for for Man City. How about you, Harshal? What do you What are you looking for in that game? Um, Ole did the double over City last season. You know, United won against City in the league, both home and away. Uh, and theoretically, this is the perfect game for United. Sit back, stay in shape. Sort of, you know, City can have the ball and then counter attack. And again, City are vulnerable to pace. They are. they are vulnerable to sort of direct counter attacks and united have are one of the few teams that have exploited that over the last couple of seasons or so so i mean of course it depends on as as dre said uh, it could uh, a big thing a big factor could be the sort of turnaround because uh united can't really rest players in midweek so whether they still have the energy to go again on the weekend against city which i think i mean even if they don't i mean i think games like these against you know your your one of your biggest rivals should give you the motivation to go out and sort of push through the through the the physical limitations that may be there so i'm going to go for maybe a, a 2-1 win to united just because the matchup is so i mean it's it's so uh, perfectly suited to you, the way united play that i think that they might just be able to take advantage of that of of city again in that sense so yeah i'm going to say it's going to be a 2-1 win to united 2-1 win to united. So here's my take. I think for United to win I don't know if there's any secret recipe to it. I I I think that Bruno's going to have to fire up the engine room and then Rashford and Greenwood are going to have to to be able to finish. And I don't know if they're going to be able to do that. The good news for Man United is that Man City to me is not nearly full strength without Aguero. And I wonder if Pep's going to have Aguero come out um and play for 90 minutes. Um you know there there is a mid a midweek game uh Champions League which frankly they've already secured their their number one slot. So it 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 could be a nice warm up. So I think if Aguero's in the lineup it's probably 2-1 uh if it, if he isn't it's going to be 1-1 uh those are those are probably the main main features that i see in in the the manchester derby i wish it were higher scoring but i think you're right arshel it's going to be a typical man city and then it's going to be some counter attacking and we'll see if bruno can make the magic happen let's change our our attention to the uh the everton chelsea game uh Dre what's what what what's your first impressions of this one? 
Um, I, I think again, I think the, the middle of the field is going to be most important. Um, talked about Everton's midfield a lot and just even, you know, seeing some of how they, how they played over the past weekend. I mean, Hamas is creating chances and Richarlison is creating chances on the other side. And I think, um, I think Chelsea can be vulnerable on counterattacks and Richarlison and, and Calvert Lewin have the pace to expose that. So. I think Everton's probably going to look to do that. And they're also going to play as well. I mean, Allen and Decore and Andre Gomez in the middle of the field uh, like to put the ball down and move it around a bit. So um, I think I think in the end, Chelsea's going to win as long as Brendan doesn't do his best to keep the ball out of the net again. He did this past weekend. But uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, Giroud is going to make, make, make himself a nuisance up front and I'll probably end up winning about two, maybe three, one, in my opinion. Uh, so you think two one uh, Chelsea? Yes. How about you, uh, Harshal? I'll go with my score prediction first. I think it's going to be three one Chelsea because, I mean, they've I've been really impressed with how they've been playing over the last couple of weeks or so. That that four three three looks a perfect fit to this uh, to the players that Lampard has, and it was uh, the Leeds game actually has has convinced me a lot more that that they they look like the real deal because. Leeds are a team who, as you said, you know they're going to cause a lot of the top teams' problems this year. And Chelsea were almost able to keep them at arm's length to an extent, and they created a lot of chances themselves. Um, one key thing is for Ancelotti is going to be what system he plays because he's moved to a back three because he doesn't have fullbacks. He does he literally does not have fullbacks at the moment, so he's having to play the likes of Iwobi, um, Fabian Delph. At wing back, Delph actually went up injured in the game against Burnley. So then he had to move. I think it was, uh, I'm not sure. I think it was Andre Gomez who went to uh, the left along with the Wobi. So uh, if he's having to play midfielders, central midfielders at wing back, I think Chelsea will take full advantage of that because you've got Chilwell and Havertz, uh, sorry, Chilwell and um, Werner on one side, and then James and I'm guessing, I don't know who he'll play on the right, but it could be Pulisic, Cal. Uh, um, Callum Hudson Odoi because Havertz, uh, uh, sorry, because Ziak is injured. So whoever comes in on that side as well, you know, both the left and right uh, Chelsea are really strong down the flanks. So I don't know what Ancelotti is going to do to counter that. Maybe he brings in Inkunku, who's like the 18 year old left back, who he's been very, um, he's he's been hesitant to bring him and throw him straight into the fire. But I think. In my opinion, playing a younger player who's well versed with the position is a is a better bet than playing someone who has more experience but has not played the position. So, I would much rather see Nkunku playing at left back, even though he's 18 years old, rather than Fabian Delph or you know Alex Iwobi playing at left wing back because they've never really played that role. So, but yeah, I, I think um, Chelsea will have too much to for Everton. So I'm going to go for three one to Chelsea. I'm inclined to agree with you. I think it's going to be a 3-1 match with the qualification if Giroud uh, is starting. Um, you know, I, I, I think for there to be an upset, um, James is going to have to step up. I, I, I feel like he's faded. I, I, don't, I don't remember him in the last two games very much. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, Awobi has got 6.7 successful attacking actions per 90 and um James is is closer to four so that's a little worrying to me i think the fact that ding dingye is is not available at, in that left wing or left back that's really hurt everton and uh what's going to have have to happen is a richardson's going to have to get away and be able to finish on a breakaway against a, a very good goalkeeper. Um, so the only way I could see an upset would be kind of a one zero where Chelsea's just completely frustrated. I, I don't see that happening, but if there was an upset, I think it would be a one zero on a counterattack. So let's turn our attention to the Leeds West Ham game. Um, Harshel, what, what do you, how do you think that game is going to play out? Um, other than the Chelsea game, um, Leeds have struggled this season against teams which sit in a low block. They, they struggled against Leicester, lost that game. They didn't do well against Palace, lost that game heavily as well. So even against Wolves, to an extent, Wolves also aren't exactly a high-pressing team and they lost that game as well. So 
this again could be one of those where it's the low block that frustrates leads although one of the ways in which you can play against a low block or sort of try to get past a low block is to have a lot of movement and a lot of rotation and leads do that i mean leads positional rotation and the movement of the ball is incredible so it'll be interesting to see how that happens and I, i would actually be very keen to see how declan rice plays at the base of west ham's midfield because he's done really well in recent weeks as the sort of um you know the, the defensive shield sort of in front of the back three um he's also taken on the armband because uh, mark noble doesn't start anymore so he's basically captain at the moment as well so it'll be interesting to see if he gets dragged out of position too much or if he's what sort of uh, positions he takes up when he's covering and who he tracks because the likes of click um Dallas Harrison these guys are going to be buzzing all over the pitch they're not going to stick to one position so um yeah it'll be an interesting game in terms of whether Leeds can finally be able to break down a low block so i actually think it, it it might be west ham's game you know this one it might just be a one nil to west ham where leeds are frustrated and this could be you know the one of the games rare games where they don't score and west ham are able to do so on on a counter attack Right, one nil to West Ham. Uh, I I like Leeds' chances in this game. I mean, I think they're top three in in xG in the league or something like that. And they, I mean, I love how they play. I I expect them to score a couple goals. I want to say three two, three two to Leeds. Wow, that's going to be a, an exciting match. I'm going to be sure to pick that up. Um, you know, to me, I, I'm I'm wondering if if Bielsa is going to let R- Rodrigo. Um, uh on onto the uh, starting 11 and see if he can make an impact uh you know i i know that bielsa has a tendency to to stay with what has worked well enough in the past and uh i i'd really like to see rodrigo who is a a spain na- international um let him go he's got he's got a lot of creativity and he's got some nice speed so time will tell on that one i'm going to say 1-1 um draw is is what that that game feels like to me what's your harsha what's your quick take on the uh the crystal palace tottenham game it's low block versus low block what what do you think's going to happen there yeah but i think this is one of those where individual quality might win out uh, palace probably have the one standout individual in zaha and we saw the difference he made you know palace was struggling for the two or three games that he missed due to covid before this and he comes into the team and they score 5 right and he i think scored to set up one so he, yes he does have the 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 quality to be able to trouble the spurs defense but i think they've managed to over the last few weeks nail their def- the defensive side of their game in terms of sh- absolutely shutting opposition teams down so if they manage to do that i i mean if you if you look at the spurs attack the likes of bergwijn and let alone kane bergwijn and son alone they can they are incredibly fast and i don't think palace have the individuals who can keep up with them you know in terms of pace especially in the back line so i mean if you can you could i mean i can literally just imagine say kane dropping off receiving a pass playing it uh, around around his shoulder to to son on the left as he did for the game against arsenal and son running through and scoring so uh i think spurs will probably have a little too much for palace although yes it can there, there may be period of frustration but uh i think they will be able to pick the lock also because they have the likes of ndombele and loselso who can who are perfectly capable of you know playing against low block teams and being able to find those passes so i would probably go for a 3-0 win to spurs 3-0 win okay how about you dre i actually i i think it'll be a little bit closer just because although tottenham defends in that in that solid block the explosiveness and the sharpness of, of players like zaha and and zeze um as I sorry I'm, I'm I'm really interested in that. I I think they'll be able to get in little spaces and just use a little little bit of pace and, and trickery to kind of create some chances and if they go up Benteke again I mean he's he's a guy capable of of fighting up with Alderweireld and and uh and Dyer and making a nuisance of himself so I I um I think maybe Palace has a good chance of of creating some opportunities and potentially scoring some goals. Obviously on the other side they're going to struggle I think with with the likes of Son and and, and Bergwijn but Um I think it'll just come down to who's more clinical on the day. Uh but maybe I don't know I I I'd like to say that I think Tottenham will probably come out with a win but I see Palace scoring some goals too so I'll, I'll predict 
I predict 2-2. Two, 2-2. Two. Two, two. Okay. Um, I, I think this is a box of chocolates match. I don't know what we're going to get because Tottenham was this uh, left-sided boxer, left-handed boxer that uh, Mourinho or Mickey Mourinho to, to mix my Rocky um, uh, characters from the movie Rocky uh, has taught, ta- has Tottenham's been taught to, to, to counterattack. Um, but back in the day, they were actually pretty good um, with, uh, with kind of uh, positive football. So I just don't know how they how, how well they're going to do about switching gears against Crystal Palace, which, you got to give Roy Hodgson credit for it. You know where he stands and you know what you're going to get. So um, I'm going to predict a 1-1 game on that one. Uh, and it's going to be a little bit of a slip up for Tottenham because they've just been flying so hard. And this is a team that may give them some trouble. Uh, we're mentioning one last game, uh, which is in large part because of a potential upset alert, which is the Leicester-Brighton game. As we've talked about in previous podcasts, Brighton has been the unluckiest team in the Premier League uh, in terms of expected goals versus actual goals. Harshel, what, what's your? How do you see this game playing out, and what's your prediction? Yeah, um, Brighton obviously are yet to play today uh, with this week's game. They play Southampton tonight, but it could be it'll be again interesting to see because Brighton are a team under Potter who they they they're very sort of, you know, flexible and they, they can play hybrid systems in the sense that because he has, Graham Potter has a few players who can play multiple roles. So he can, it can be that they start out with a back four, for example, but in, during the game, they can switch to a back three with no substitutions needed, you know, players just moving to a different role uh, on the pitch. So I am interested to see how he lines up against Leicester because I'm, I, I would expect Leicester to maybe play with a back three in this game. So I am interested to see if he matches that up or if he goes with a back four. Uh, I, I think they might not have the services of Neil Mope because I, I don't think he's recovered from a hamstring. So, but even then they have Danny Welbeck's hit a good, decent bit of form. He's someone who can, you know, he, he's, he's deceptively fast. You know, he's one of those guys, when you look at him, you don't think he's actually quite fast, but then when you see him on the pitch, he's, he, he can get away from, anybody in the league, you know, he's actually quite fast. So if you've got Mope, you've got um, the likes of Pascal Gross supplying him, Adam Lalana, if he's fit and if he plays, he's also obviously very creative. So it's it's one of those where it could be an interesting game to watch because even though you may not have too many superstar players, I think the tactics used by both managers and some of those players are, uh, you know, potential stars in the making. So I would I'm not sure, man. I, this could be a one-all game, to be honest. Both teams could probably get a goal and cancel each out each other out a little bit. But it, I think it'll be an interesting game to watch. Gray, uh, I think Leicester one no. I think I'm. Party. I, I, I'm in the same boat. It's party uh, party. <laughs> it's it's a familiar um, narrative, but it's a comforting narrative uh, if you're a Leicester fan. One um, zero Vardy. Um, Harshel. What are your general observations on on the league tables or any surprises? Anything that you're paying attention to as we as we begin to wrap the pod? Um, as I said earlier on, you know, very impressed with Chelsea. And again, if you look at metrics, they're doing extremely well. They have, I believe, the second highest XG in the league. They have the lowest XGA in the league. Um, they've conceded the joint. Uh, sorry, the second lowest number of goals after Spurs. They've scored the second highest number of goals after Liverpool. And, you know, it, it just looks generally, and I mean, if you look at expected points as well, which is basically if you were to simulate the outcomes of every game about a thousand times and the, you assign points to every team based on, on those simulations, Chelsea should be top of the league based on expected points. You know, they have 22 points at the moment, but they would have 21 points, uh, expected points, but everybody else would have a lot fewer, so they would be top of the league. But uh, I think they, they're really coming together as as a team, and it'll be interesting to see if that that keeps up and whether they you know they're able to keep pace with the likes of Liverpool, 
city if they're able to sort of mount a resurgence. So that's one storyline storyline which I'm watching. And another one is whether Spurs can keep their form going. I mean, they've they've played City, uh, Arsenal, and Chelsea in the last three games. They've not conceded a goal, and they've picked up seven out of nine points, two wins and a draw. So everyone thought that this would be a very tricky period of games for for Spurs, but they've played three of those games and they've not lost a game, not conceded a goal. They play Palace next, which we obviously spoke about could be a potential tricky one. And then I think 10 days down the line or nine days from today is one of the biggest games of the season based on how the table is right now because they travel to Anfield. Spurs against Liverpool will, I think, have a huge impact on the title race. Obviously, Liverpool haven't lost a home game in more than three years, but I can see that happening. You know, this is obviously something we discuss on next week's pod, but just as a very advanced sort of preview for that game, I can see that that game could again be one of the games of the season in terms of Spurs being able to counter-attack and maybe, maybe just give Liverpool or, or condemn Liverpool to a defeat for the first time in three years, more than three years at home. So, who knows? But yeah, Spurs and Chelsea... Obviously, apart from Man United, who I obviously will track and generally all the big six. But of those, I think Spurs and Chelsea are the two ones which are bear a little more scrutiny over the le- over the next couple of weeks. Dre? Uh, yeah, I mean, looking at the standings now, the, the six teams who I guess you would expect to be up there at this point have, have made their way up there. Uh, an interesting order still, I think, but they're there to say the least. Uh, I, I think for me right now, I think Chelsea is the team that probably has the strongest chance of winning the Premier League. Um, I I just, we know how important December is for, for the Premier League in terms of the fixtures coming up and whatnot. And I think their, their squad depth is one of the best in the league. And I think they're, they'll be well prepared for that. Um, I'm not sure that Tottenham is as prepared as Chelsea is. And we already know, you know, Liverpool has been struggling with their injuries as it has been already. So uh, yeah, I, I like Chelsea. I was, Leeds and Arsenal, obviously, I think are, are some surprises down there low in the table. Leeds being 14th, Arsenal's 15th. Um, don't really know where Arsenal's going to go from here. I, I, I don't know if they're going to make it back to the top half by the end of the season. But Leeds, I, I definitely expect to start to make a little bit of a push and make their way up there. I think they're, they're playing well. The results just have to come at this point. But other than that, I think the table looks pretty, pretty standard, pretty solid. Yeah, I think that the, the storylines I'm paying attention to is I feel like Tottenham has been a become moized and uh, I wasn't sure if that was possible. So I, I believe in that. I still don't know if I believe in the all. Uh, it's certainly not going to be nothing, but I, I think they're going to improve. I imagine they're going to be they're another player away or two uh, in terms of a, an attacking player away um, for really being able to contend seriously. Um, Holberg has, was, was, has been a mag- magnificent pickup and Mo talks about how he's basically the coach on the field and will likely get into management once he retires. Liverpool is Liverpool, right? I mean, despite a, a rash of injuries, they've been able to take care of business. I'm inclined to agree with Harshell that I think that Chelsea, it's not a two a two horse race. It's probably a three horse race going forward. Leicester still not buying into yet, just because it's uneven. You know, maybe when they're they're even though their back line has done well, I think if they have a couple of returning injuries from some key backline folks, it could maybe even strengthen things more. Man U, I they're doing well, but I still I think they're. They've found their Jenga piece, uh, so we'll kind of see see where things go with that. Everyone else, you know, I, I don't want to be I don't want to beat down Arsenal any more than it already is. That's a big head scratcher for me. Um, and Leeds is probably not too far off from where it belongs, though they're so exciting to watch. Uh, it's just hard if you give up twenty goals in ten or eleven games to uh, to be anywhere in significant contention. As far as the bottom of the table. You know, Sheffield still remains a bit of a uh, a surprise. I just, at this point, I don't know how you spot teams so many points uh, and get out of re- regulation 
Uh, you know, I, Chris Wilder, I think is a fan. He didn't turn from a great coach to a terrible coach in a short period of time. I do think that the regression to the mean, which is such a cold, cynical term might've happened. Um, West Brom, Burnley, Fulham, uh, those folks are going to be struggling to, uh, to, to stay in the premier league. So I think we've got some really interesting storylines. I think there's some validation that needs to occur. I guarantee you there are going to be some surprises. We did talk about what are the themes of of the season, and we talked about it being a really messy one. Well, we had our messy for about nine or ten weeks, uh, and now it's starting to clean up. Maybe what we really meant was messy, as in Lionel Messi coming in January. Um, so maybe that uh, he he can bail us out of that. The other thing we talked about, which is uh, pragmatism versus dogma, uh, and uh, you know, I think in this difficult time of of COVID and 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 short smaller squads because of injuries, there has been a lot more pra- pragmatism um, involved. Um, so time will tell on that. So I think that's where we'll leave the pod uh, this week. Uh, we're sponsored by the Premier League Guide a 300-page guide of the season created by a team of 15-plus writers and designers. Moneyball for football, analytics plus opposition analysis plus eye candy. The next update is available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. Join us for our next Football Thinking Fans podcast. For now, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao.